Buenos dias. Thank you for being here this morning. It is a pleasure to be able to speak the Word of God to you today. And I have... There is no way to tell you how, how rich this weekend has been for me. For those of you that have been here already and have been part of these other sessions that we've gotten to enjoy, thank you so much for the gift that you have given to me. And I pray that in some small way, I have given back to you as well. I'm so thankful for this church and for our time to be together today. I think for most Christians, heaven sounds good and God sounds good. But today I want to convince you that God should sound nearly unbelievable, but we believe him, and that heaven should sound absolutely breathtaking simply because God is there. This is, um, I, this is an opportunity for us to sing some hymns this weekend. It, it was that on Friday night, and, and I get invited quite a bit to come and, and lead hymns for different churches, and I love doing that because I love the content of the hymns that we have been given through the English-speaking traditions, and I've learned this week through the Spanish-speaking traditions as well. Uh, the content of our hymns just celebrates some of these things that are so crucially important to us. We love the idea that there will be no tears in heaven. We love singing about when our names are called in that land. Uh, we love singing about how beautiful heaven must be and that we have a mansion just over the hilltop when we get to heaven. We love singing that we will be someday in a place where we will never grow old and neither will those whom we love. All of that sounds really good. I'm sorry, I did not expect to get choked up right there. Um, all of that sounds really good. And different ones of those hymns may have characteristics that appeal to us and, and speak to us differently at different points in our lives. But the one that I consistently come back to as my favorite, over and over, all the hymns about heaven is a hymn called On Zion's Glorious Summit. Because that hymn, while so many of the others talk about the benefits of being in heaven, they talk about what the place is like. That hymn talks about why it matters. It talks about the point of heaven. And that hymn, possibly more than any other, emphasizes for us that heaven is all about God. And so that's what I want us to focus on today. That's the main point. I've already told you the whole point of the sermon right there is that we would learn to appreciate that the most important and most wonderful thing about heaven is the presence of God. And to show you that, I want to turn our attention to the scriptures. I'd like for you to have a Bible and open it to Revelation chapter four. And I'm going to take Paul's instructions to Timothy and give attention to the public reading of scripture. And we're going to read all of Revelation chapters 4 and 5 this morning. So, let's open our Bibles and let's read together the words that the Spirit gave to the Apostle John. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the
appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Y'all, I know that we kind of wonder about a lot of stuff that happens in that. 
I know that we kind of would like to be able to get an accurate picture of some of the powerful stuff in that scene. But can I tell you that as I have read it over and over again, what I notice about those two chapters is not the decorations of the scene. What I notice is what all of them are noticing. What are they all focused on? What is in the middle of that scene? This again is the most important thing we can learn today. It is that they understand and we need to as well that heaven is all about the presence of God. The Bible's picture of heaven presents a noticeable departure from the self-glorifying and self-satisfying way that we tend to think about heaven. We like to think about mansions and gold streets we like to imagine that heaven in each of our mansions is going to have like a, an indoor pool and a spa. We like to imagine maybe by then we'll all be given a free iPhone. By then they'll be calling it the iPhone eternity, you know. That's what we imagine that it's going to be like the richest, most wonderful, most extravagant vacation you've ever been on. And, you know, it would be nice if God dropped by for a visit once in a while. But y'all, that's not exact. That's not at all the way that it's presented. Heaven, brothers and sisters, is about God. And in the same way that the Garden of Eden was paradise for humanity, heaven is going to be a renewed paradise for us. You learn in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that it was the most wonderful place God's people could have been. Adam and Eve were in the presence of God, and that's what made it paradise. It wasn't how good the fruit was. It wasn't the beauty of the trees. It wasn't the weather in Eden that made it paradise. It was God's presence. And that's what it will be in heaven for us. And when we get there, can I just say as a hopefully an extremely encouraging idea here, that there is no room for boredom in the presence of God. There is no room for anything, in fact, except for free, natural and righteous worship of God. Now, I'm going to circle back on that for in just a second, but let me kind of break into that thought for just a second to make this little warning here. In the world of religious publishing, various books have sold in the millions of copies that describe people visiting heaven and coming back to tell about their experiences there. Okay, so you may have heard of a few of these. Uh, the best-selling one and one of the best-selling evangelical books of the past decade is a book called Heaven is for Real, uh, which is the story from a four-year-old boy who had a near-death experience and was said to have visited heaven and come home to tell about it, and his dad wrote the book. Another one, very similar here, a boy, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Same kind of story, this time written by a six-year-old boy, um, or, or at least told by a six-year-old boy, written by his father, whose name is Alex Malarkey. That may not translate into Spanish, but y'all get it, don't you? <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, and neither of those is to be confused with a host of other books that make various claims about the experiences that people have had in heaven when they almost died, but didn't. And while I can't stand up here and tell you that every experience that these people had has to be completely invalidated and there can't be anything true about it, Neither can I stand before you and vouch for any of them being on the same level of understanding of what heaven is about as what the scriptures tell us about it. Because what the scriptures tell us about it is that when you step into the presence of God, the only thing that truly matters 
is the presence of God. There are only four Bible writers who ever spoke of having visions of heaven. They were Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. Now, granted, they're all slightly different from each other, but they are similar in the fact that they are all dominated by understanding that they are in the presence of God. And so these books, while, again, almost all of them have the phrase true story printed on them, and I can't say that's not really what happened, that's not really what you saw about any of these, what I can say is that if what you're enamored with when you see into, the pre- into, into heaven itself, if what you're enamored with is the color that the Holy Spirit kind of glows with and, and the heart that you're given and whether your halo fits just right or doesn't, which is what a lot of the content of these books is, if that's what your focus is on, if that's what you're enamored with, then I don't think you're seeing it rightly. Because the people who have seen into heaven were completely, utterly overcome by the presence of God. And that's what you see in these chapters of Revelation. Now, based on that understanding of heaven, like that kind of stuff, and some of the understanding that we have that we've created, I think, among ourselves as as Christians, I can kind of understand why some believers have thought that heaven might actually be a little bit boring. That it doesn't sound like it's going to be the most rewarding thing. When we talk about heaven like it's a sunny vacation resort where everyone is hanging out and the Holy Spirit comes by to check on you every now and then, not every believer thinks that that sounds right and sounds good. And on, the other, on another hand, when we stand up at the end of a great song service and we say, we're all looking forward to being in heaven where we can sing for eternity, there's usually somebody among us who doesn't really like four-part harmony singing. <laughs> And when you say that's what heaven is for eternity, they go, great. (laughs) I'm just trying to be sympathetic to that because it doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches that heaven is all actually about. When it's not all about that kind of stuff, when it actually starts to shift in our minds to being about the presence of God, we can understand a level of excitement about heaven that I think is going to help all of us. Because it's not just about singing, and it's not just about relaxing, and it's not just about about riches and, and wealth and all of the things that we want it to be from this passage. It is about actually getting to meet face to face the God whom we are told to love with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. That's the reward of heaven. And if it's anything like when other people met that God face to face in the Bible, then it's going to affect us in some very profound and deep ways. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses met God at the, at the burning bush, it says in chapter 3 verse 6, Moses was afraid to look at this God. He was essentially saying that God was too great for him to be in his presence. And so he responded with an act of humility and adoration toward his God. When Gideon was called to be a judge of God's people, he realized that he had spoken with Jehovah's messenger and he responded with an act of worship. He built an altar to praise God. When Isaiah met God in a vision in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, His reaction was to say, woe is me, I am undone. 
Because being in the presence of God changes our whole understanding of ourselves and of Him. There was never a time in the Bible when somebody was able to be in the presence of God and tune it out or be bored or glaze over in some way. That wasn't an option. Even John, who is most likely the disciple that Jesus loved, that's a man that knew God well. And even John, when he sees his friend, Christ, in his heavenly presence, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Everybody who's in the presence of God is completely overcome by being in the presence of God. Nobody is bored. There's no room for boredom in heaven. The beauty, the light, the inescapably apparent holiness. It made Daniel and John completely immobile. It literally burned up Nadab and Abihu. And in these chapters of the Revelation, it drives even the highest ranking heavenly beings to their faces to worship and praise and adore this God. Heaven, brothers and sisters, is going to be utterly amazing because God is utterly amazing. And when we start to see it through that filter, you start to realize a few really important things from these chapters of John's writing. So, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You still have it open? Let me highlight a couple of ideas here. The first one is that heaven is all about the presence of God eternally. Forever and ever, that phrase shows up in three different places in these chapters. Chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 5, verse 14. We are told that the one who sits on the throne reigns forever and ever. And the beings who are there praise Him and adore Him forever and ever. Because that's what it's all about. And by the way, I don't think that means necessarily four-part hymn singing. I think that means that in whatever form it expresses itself, it's it's an outpouring of a heart that is overcome with appreciation for who He is. And that's why I say worship will flow naturally in that environment. Because when we see Him, we finally understand Him. There's no other adequate response but to worship Him in some form or another. So when people ask, What are we going to do in heaven? We're going to worship God. And that will be enough. That will be all that eternity should be about. And that is the reward for people who truly know Him and seek Him in this life. So heaven is about the presence of God eternally. The second thing you realize from John's experience in the throne room here is that heaven is about the presence of God entirely. And this to me is, again, the single most important idea in this message. That God is not part of the heavenly experience, y'all. He is the heavenly experience. That's what it's all about. And that's all that it needs to be. As John looks into the throne room and this powerful scene unfolds, nothing else is needed in these two chapters. Not even the rest of the descriptions of the holy city found later in Revelation. This will tell us enough that it doesn't need any of those descriptions yet because we have a picture of the presence of God right here. And because of that, let me make another little warning here. It's kind of the same same idea, but made in a slightly different way. 
that when we estimate heaven will be like the nicest thing we've experienced on earth, we are underestimating God's presence. I have made this mistake. Well, thank you. That was a good amen. (laughs) I have made this mistake in preaching funerals where I stood up and, and even at my own grandmother's funeral, I made some offhanded comment about how now that she has departed this life and she's in heaven, she must be doing that thing that she used to love when she was, you know, back in the day when she was younger and it was so important to her. And, and I wondered where I got that idea. That what she's doing in heaven is reliving the nicest thing that happened to her on earth. wonder where I got that idea. Because I went and looked for it in the Bible and I haven't been able to find it again. I think I got it just from our imaginations about heaven. Which are honestly smaller in scope than what the reality actually is. Because the reality is that it's going to be about being in the presence of God. And I don't think my grandmother, when she got into God's presence, went, well, this is nice, but can I go do that thing? I don't think that happens to anybody that steps into the presence of the almighty, all-knowing God who has redeemed us and wants us to be with him. Heaven is not about reliving the joys of earth that you've already experienced. For the Christian, whose life is driven by the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of yourself, that's the moment where you finally get to do it without any of your weaknesses getting in the way. That's the moment where you finally get to do that without any of the temptations drawing you away from that love for Him. That's the moment where, yet we say, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Yeah, that's what happens. The faith element disappears because now we see Him in whom we have hoped for all of our lives. What we want is to see God clearer and more radiant than ever before. And I'm certainly not the first person to think about making this admonition, this sermon, in this particular way. I know that I'm not the first. One beloved Christian writer said about a century ago, when after centuries of spiritual training, men have learned to desire and adore God, to pant after Him as the deer pants for flowing streams, then for those who love God, their desire is for Him and they will get to enjoy Him and enjoy Him forever with no fear of losing Him. And it is by that door that a truly religious hope of heaven and a fear of hell can enter. It is even arguable, and I love this, that the moment heaven ceases to mean union with God and hell ceases to mean separation from God, the belief in either of them becomes more of a mischievous superstition. You could probably guess who the writer is, some of you. His name was C.S. Lewis. And I think he understood that more biblically than what I understood when I spoke at Nanny's funeral. Because that's what it's all about. That hope of eternity is what the Apostle Paul was thinking about when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because of a mansion? No, because of God. I want to be with Him. 
My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And so all of that, now this is where our theology turns to how we live. Okay, all of that is why we cannot plan to live a God-centered life here so that we can have a self-centered life there. But I think that's what we've done, isn't it? It's not going to be all about God here so that when you get to heaven, you can just lie around and someone will come and serve you whatever food and drink you order. It's not like that. Understanding and, and adoration and devotion of God is only amplified when we are with Him. And I think that makes sense even if we don't really process it very often. But if Christian living is the best way to live in this life, wouldn't it also be the best way to live forever? Because it is to His honor and glory and for our blessing. And so the best thing that we can do is prepare now to love Him that much more deeply in eternity. And I want to show you one other feature of this passage that makes this so much more obvious and makes this point so much more impactful. When you look through these chapters, if we talk about how our experience here is going to be the same but amplified when we get to heaven, it's the same thing that's happening here. As you look through the praise that's offered to God through this passage, it grows in scale as, each chapter, as the chapters unfold. Okay? So take a look at chapter 4. In chapter 4, look at verse 8. The four living creatures, night and day, praise the one who sits on the throne. So, so we've got to track the numbers and what's going on here. We have four living creatures praising the one who's on the throne. Okay? Next, we add the 24 elders, and they praise with the four living creatures the one who sits on the throne. Then we go into chapter 5, and we get to chapter 5, round about verses 8 and 9. Now we have the living creatures the 24 elders who are praising the one on the throne and are praising the Lamb who stands in their presence. And then when we get down to the end of chapter 5, we have all the hosts of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is under the earth and all that is in them praising together with the 24 elders and with the four living creatures the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who stands in His presence. You see how the praise is elevated through the whole thing? And, and it reminds me very well of the line from the hymn, Amazing Grace. When we've been there for 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Matter of fact, as eternity rolls on, we will only, I think we will only understand even more the wonder and the splendor and the grandeur and the praiseworthiness of God. Heaven is not about lying down and resting. It's about finally approaching God like true believers always want to approach God. With total freedom. No guilt, brother. No more guilt. No temptations. No regrets. No distractions. Do you want to be able to do that? Then you want to spend your eternity in heaven. Now that's my hope. My hope is that preaching a message like this and understanding this truth more correctly from the Bible, it doesn't de-emphasize heaven in any way. It doesn't take away any of the joy that we would have. I hope that what it does is increase our joy and, and drive it in the correct direction 
That it gets us to understand this is what we really want. That heaven, because of the presence of God, will actually supersede the joys of riches and mansions and gold and good health. It will go far beyond the joy of those things because we will be in the presence of God. And that's why the hymn on Zion's glorious summit holds its place as my favorite hymn about heaven. Because it so closely follows the picture of heaven that is revealed to us in these chapters. Zion is a place that has Old Testament and New Testament significance as being a place where God's people come to be in His presence. The mountain of Zion was where the temple was built. Why? So that God and His people could meet together and have fellowship together. And in, in Revelation, Zion is the picture of what it will be like when we can be with Him for eternity. The description of what, what Christians are in this passage, it says that they have been, or in this hymn, it says they have been redeemed by blood. Well, who's that about? That's about us. That's about the saints who want to be with their God. And when they're in that setting, what do they do? How do they respond? The hymn says they gave hymns to their king in divine strains. What does that mean? It means praise of God for who he really is. They hymned their king in strains divine. No wonder the hymn writer says, when I heard them singing, I wanted to join in. Our brother Ralph Walker was teaching about an idea from later in the book of Revelation. And I heard him talking about a phrase that will sound familiar to us. The the song of the redeemed that no one else could learn. You remember hearing this phrase from the book of Revelation? Chapter 14 is found in verse 3. And he said one of the things about that hymn, what makes it impossible for others to learn is that they don't know the God that the hymn is about. It's the hymn of the redeemed. And only the redeemed can sing it because only they know the God to whom it is sung. And I think, brothers and sisters, if we really know that God, when we hear any song of praise for who He is and what He's done, we want to join in that, don't we? We want to add our voices to that chorus of praise. Because we want to sing the same praise that they sang in heaven in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4, down at verse 8. We want to join them in singing the lines again from this same hymn, Holy, 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 God of hosts on high adored. That's what we want. We want to be able to join in their chorus And to sing His praise for eternity, knowing who He is in fullness in a way that we've never experienced Him in this life. Heaven is all about God. Now what does that mean? Well, very simply, if you want to talk about how that makes a difference in our lives, very simply, it means if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear death. It means you get to look forward to being in the presence of God for eternity. And, and, and I don't have any clue what that kind of emotional moment is going to be like. I have no idea, but I'm sure looking forward to it. To being with Him. But on the other hand, if you're not a Christian, then this is what you're missing out on. You will be separated from the God who gives life for eternity. 
And what's going to happen when you're separated from the source of all life? The only option is death. And that's why hell can be described by the Lord as eternal destruction because it is away from the presence of God. And so, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting, not just for heaven, not just for a golden city, but waiting for Him. That is what it's all about. I hope that we can learn to love God like that so that we are ready for eternity and for what it really is for us to stand on Zion's glorious summit and praise our King with strains divine. Would you stand with me and sing this hymn? <clears throat> on Zion's glorious summit stood a numerous host redeemed by blood. They hymned their King in strains divine. I heard the Jesus' lovely name shall victory now and hail the land and bow before the great I am and bow before the great I am while their soul and scenes of bliss forever new rise in succession to
remain. Please stay standing. We're going to sing another hymn, and I just want you to think about where you are in consideration of all of this. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, God says, Heaven is my throne. I want to be in the presence of His throne. And I want to be able to sing hymns like that, and even better. I want to praise Him with hymns and strains like that, and even better, for eternity. As impossible as it sounds for for us to think, well, we could get to that place. We could be in that place. Here's the rest of that verse from Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. If there's somebody among us today who's in that place where you are willing to be humble and to tremble at his word and be obedient to him by faith, then we would love to talk to you about what that means and all that goes into that so that you can be saved by Jesus and put your faith in Him and spend eternity in the presence of God. If I can talk to you or if one of the elders of this church can talk to you about that, would you come forward and let us know while we sing this hymn as well?